I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. My guest today is one of those rare breeds who seems to be able to turn everything he does into gold. As an actor of immense power and diversity, a rapper of cutting-edge material, and an activist dedicating himself to the betterment of the world, Ritz Asmed is indeed an extraordinary man. And it was through one of his most recent films, Sound of Metal, whereby he plays the lead role of a drummer losing his hearing, that brought us together for the first time. So that was quite a film because, of course, we met... Uh, at a private viewing of Sound of Metal. And I'm just intrigued, really, you know, with the huge success it has had, not least six Oscar nominations, for which two were won, how you came to this role, how you were approached to be part of this film, and what you thought about the subject, the actual storyline. Well, I have to say that I knew very little about the subject matter when I first took on the project. I didn't have much contact with the deaf community. I um, had never played the drums before. Um, I wasn't a recovering addict, uh, (laughs) at least not in the kind of uh, narcotic sense. And so it really was um, an introduction into all these worlds in a way that was really eye-opening and enriching and almost quite life-changing in a way. I mean, in terms of how I came to the project, it it happened really um, very quickly and in quite an unexpected way. It wasn't like a project that I had an eye on um, or was aware of. Darius Marder, writer-director, I don't think he was, you know, he was kind of vaguely aware of me, but it was really my agent I should credit with putting us in touch, saying, hey, this is a script that's gone unmade for the best part of a decade. And I think it's a brilliant script. And for some reason, it just it can't get made. And um, he put us together. And, and when we met up, we just um, immediately had this affinity. I think we both had this hunger to just kind of be pushed out of our comfort zones and to take on challenges that were quite daunting. And I think for Darius, the ambition behind a film like this for his first feature was daunting, but also exhilarating. And similarly for me, learning how to drum or learning sign language and also taking on the emotional kind of um, uh, challenge of this project was, was, yeah, it was exciting and also scary. And I suppose that when you see a script, I mean, what comes first? Do you look at the script? Do you spend time with that script? Or is it equally important to see the team and to meet the team of people whom you might be working with and, and, uh, you know, sense that chemistry? Hmm. Well, it's really both. I mean, the script comes first. You usually read the script. And a fantastic script is, is the backbone of you know, of, of any great project. And this was a fantastic script. That was without a doubt. And then, of course, the other 50% of the equation is do you gel with your creative partners and none are more important than your director? So in this case, you know, I wasn't sure what Darius would be like, but we just immediately clicked. I think, yeah, we're kindred spirits in many ways. And, um, you know, 
he, he really is one of those people who has an infectious sense of self-belief, you know, and a belief in the work and what, what the work means and what it can do and how it can be life-changing for those who make it and those who watch it. And, um, and that sense of mission, that sense of daring, that boldness infused every creative decision he made, whether it was deciding to shoot on film and, um, you know, how expensive and time-consuming that is for a low-budget film through to, I don't know, um, deciding that they wouldn't cheat the music and I would actually have to learn how to play the drums and actually be playing them on camera, you know, um, or, or the sound design and how ambitious and involved that was. He really just had this kind of um, sense of uh, ambition and adventure and can-do, which which I think just inspired everyone on the team. Mm. And I think, you know, when... <laughs> You had so much to do, and I would imagine that as an actor, you're very often out of your comfort zone. Um, but here we are, you know, you're faced with having to learn American Sign Language, ASL, also play the drums and immerse yourself in the deaf community. I mean, how did you go about those steps? Because that's quite a, a, a mammoth path to embark on. Yeah, you know, it's... Um... It's one step at a time, I guess, yeah. you know, one scary step at a time. And I think one thing I learned from this project, um, there was also a kind of physical um, element to it in terms of working out to get to a certain kind of physique. And um, it's interesting because I think that the older you get, the more you realize how important it is to be able to be comfort, comfortable with discomfort. Mm. You know, that you have to be prepared to be terrible at playing the drums for five and a half of those seven months and then just about passable for like a month. And in the, the week before you shoot something clicking, you have to be prepared to be uncomfortable with it. You have to be prepared to um, put yourself in that position of, not liking what you're doing, not thinking it's good enough, and sometimes being in, you know, states of physical pain with your working out or kind of emotional pain or embarrassment um, or frustration. And if you can kind of push through that discomfort, then one step at a time, you know, does lead you quite some way down the road. Um, and, and, and it was really that process. It was really down to the patience of my teachers as well. You know, um, Gaile Carter on drums, Jeremy Lee Stone on American Sign Language, Leighton Grant, my physical trainer, who's also hard of hearing. Um, so it was really a kind of, it takes a village, you know, and uh, it takes time. And, and so with all of those disciplines, I, you know, have they remained with you? Have you felt, yes, you know what, I'd quite like to continue playing the drums or continue with ASL? Well, I maintain some friendships, um, in particular with Jeremy Stone uh, in the deaf community. And so there's, um, you know, some of my rusty ASL kind of comes back to the surface when we hang out and we talk. Um, in terms of physical training, I think that's something that's become a part of my life. Um, just because I kind of feel like psychologically it's, it's impact, again, the discipline of putting yourself in states of discomfort, breathing through the discomfort, um, is something that I've found very centering because in many ways I share, 
you know, um, a lot of the traits that Ruben has, you know, you know, Ruben is someone who's a workaholic, who's always on the go and suddenly he defines himself through his creative passions. And when that's taken away from him, then, um, you know, he's often kind of uh, feels like he's, he's sinking. And that's something that actually I experienced with COVID lockdown. And, um, and I found kind of, you know, that, that physical discipline of being in the body to be something that was very, very centering. Um, yeah. And in a way, uh, yeah, a way of keeping my, uh, uh, my own addiction at bay, you know, of workaholism. Mm. Mm. And I suppose that, I mean, you mentioned Ruben, the, the lead character in Sound of Metal and, and a lot of what happens in being deaf is, is centering. I mean, it is very much related to where you are in in your environment because you are trying to pick up clues from all around you but I think this whole past year with COVID has allowed us all to listen and perhaps you know globally we're addressing the difference between hearing and listening and has there been you know something within the deaf community that you have learned that perhaps you have not been aware of before yeah massively I mean I feel the deaf community taught me the true meaning of listening you know listening is so different from hearing hearing is a physical sense it's a know biological process listening is something to do with your attention and your energy and where you place it and how you hold space for someone else's energy with your attention it's much more it's an act of absorption of osmosis um it's a meditative act it's a you know times a kind of spiritual act you know listening it's about um it's 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 about kind of removing the barrier between yourself and the other i mm. think it's most profound and i feel like the deaf community as many of the deaf people i hang out with are the best listeners i've ever met mm. you know in terms of attention in terms of energy exchange um in terms of overcoming the barriers that society or our senses may have placed between us in order to create an open space of communication. I feel the deaf community taught me the true meaning of communication. You know, in particular with American Sign Language, Jeremy Stone would say to me, listen, um, hearing people are emotionally repressed. And he would joke with me and I'd say, what? And I don't know what your take is on that, Evelyn, you know, um, but there's, but I thought I was going, okay, that's interesting. And when I became more fluent in ASL, it was only then that I, understood what he was talking about because communicating about, I don't know, my family or even my character um, in ASL would bring a tear to my eye in a way that communicating with words would not or could not. And that's because um, that physical communication is embodied in a different way. It is communicating from your core, from your body, you talking from the soles of your feet and not without even using words. And there's something in that, that, that stayed with me. So I feel like the, yeah, listening, communication, all these things were, were taught to me in the most fundamental and profound way by the deaf community. Wow. I mean, you're, you've expressed that so incredibly powerfully and, and eloquently. And do you think that, you know, having learned ASL and spent time within the deaf community, do you feel that has um, 
influenced what you are doing as a musician? That's a really great question, you know. That's a really, really great question. I sometimes think about this because, of course, you know, um, many um, deaf people um, have varying levels of hearing. You know, some people will be able to pick up the vibrations of bass. Some people, you know, um, will be able to pick up more. Um, it, it really varies. So, um, you know, I'd love to hear from you about this, but from my understanding is that the deaf experience of music is a multifaceted and varied one. And I guess I've thought less about, you know, how to, although some of my music is quite bass heavy. And so I hope that it it may be the kind of thing that many people who are, you know, close to complete deafness even can kind of pick up on rhythmically um, and vibrationally. So in a, in a, in a, in a strange way, I feel that, um, it has made my creative process a more internal one, mm. a more um, a more emotional one, and that's because I think Sound of Metal and the character Ruben really reminded me of yeah of of what the role of art really is, of creativity really is, which is a kind of therapy. And I think for many years I was making music, um, which I stand by and I'm proud of but was thinking more about how can I serve my community? Mm-hmm. How can I make music that can express the experience of others so others can find themselves in this mm-hmm. who may not be able to find themselves elsewhere? If you look at and my mixtape, Inglistan, or my music with the Sweatshop Boys, I felt though it was a, it was a catharsis, but it was also a kind of community service. Mm-hmm. And I think after Sound of Metal, it's really re-emphasized for me how creativity at its most impactful is intimate. It's intimately personal. And with music like, um, you know, my more recent track, Once Kings, that's just very much about me kind of unpacking my heart. And so, um, yeah, in a strange way, I haven't tried to shift my music in order to cater to different um kind of hearing capacities, I've thought more about actually music and art isn't about who hears it at all. It's about the creative act of catharsis. It doesn't matter if no one hears it. Mm. It's so interesting because in a way you could say, well, doesn't that sound a bit selfish? But actually it has to come from within. You know, there there is this sense of um, extreme journey that a person goes through when they're experimenting uh, with with ideas and in a way something that comes from that person it 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 is an internal source and it has to be true to themselves but I think also what's interesting about Sound of Metal is how it in a way, portrays that message of inclusivity. So it starts where Ruben uh, is, is, you know, really trying to fight the world of deafness and doesn't want to be in that uh, type of community, that world doesn't want to be part of it. But then bit by bit realizes that, my gosh, you know, this is a whole different landscape that is completely open, you know, and, and everything is accessible 
if we give ourselves time and that peaceful, peaceful scene at the end when you're sitting on a bench, uh, you, you know, and just simply looking up and being with yourself and being with the sound world around you is, is quite powerful, actually, because you're not giving or taking. You're just simply almost accepting as it is. And, and that, that's quite extraordinary. And you're right, as creative beings, we're always trying to serve. We're always trying to think, oh, well, you know, that, that's who's coming along to my concert. So therefore, you know, we'll tick the box for this and that. And yes, it is. It is really, really interesting. I think is something that's hardwired into us as all humans, this idea of seeking the validation of our community, of our audience, the people around us seeking that social acceptance. Mm. And yet to be an artist, I think you also have to risk um, um, ostracization. You have to risk um, being out outcast, mm. you know? Um, it's, and I think in particular, as performers often you know we seek that round of applause we yeah. seek that validation on some level it's it's hard it's it's taught to us and yet you have to on some level be prepared to turn your back on the audience and face yourself mm. um and what i find interesting is that you know of course you can take that to an extreme and if it goes to an extreme that becomes indulgent you know for sure mm. so it's always about balance but what I find is more often than not, when you honestly face yourself, you are you are communicating directly to an audience. Mm. You know, when you really go to an internal place, you really are hitting the back of the room. You know, nothing resonates more than emotion. It, it's it's so so wonderful what you're saying there, because in a way, when we think about an experience sound of metal, I mean, my my initial reaction was that, gosh, this is very powerful, not just to people who like to see films, but for the the medical community, for education, for everybody to think about what does listening mean to me? You know, have, have I thought about listening? You know, what is the difference between hearing and listening? And, and, and you've expressed this so powerfully. And I think the film really, I think, can be a very important tool um, for many, many different uh, disciplines in a way. So um, I'm, I'm just absolutely delighted that it exists and, and for oh, you giving you. such a powerful, powerful performance in it. And just thank talk... You, can, I, can I just say, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you exist. This <laughs> film couldn't exist without you and people like you who consistently are breaking the mould in terms of people's preconceptions about what's possible and who belongs where and who can do what, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in a small way, I think we kind of found that even in making this film, you know, with so many incredible deaf non-actors lighting up the screen and bringing this film to life. Mm. Um, you know, I think it, it takes people like you, honestly, to break that mold that allow us to kind of reimagine what's possible. So thank you. No, not at all. And, and you know, I, I think also, um, you know, without dwelling on this too much, but, you know, we have seen a real um, 
shift, I suppose, in how we categorize disabilities in, in general. And I think this film has, has played a massive part in that, along with technology, because, of course, the film um, experiments with Ruben uh, being fitted with cochlear implants. And, and I mean, it's such a, 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 an interesting journey that because of course we imagine that cochlear implants that's great you can now hear and of course you had this whole journey um, of, of trying to decipher this extraordinary you know dizzying world of, of sound and to to the extent of wanting to take off and get rid of the cochlear implants you know and and it's very difficult to define disability to define deafness blindness a person in a wheelchair and so on unless you're actually in contact with um a community who's experiencing those things on many different levels yeah it's um the immersion within the deaf community was absolutely instrumental in trying to bring the story to life authentically as was immersion within the recovery addiction recovery community and also mm -hmm. you know the the kind of punk metal kind of scene in new york which was which was very much new to me but it, you know I, I love what you're saying about the re-designation of disability as as different abilities you know as differing ability um the idea of being handicapped um of being kind of unable um, compared to the majority is really only a kind of social reality mm. you know that's the reality within our society because of the way our society is set up mm. but uh, like I said I'm an actor I've been acting for 15 years in, in films I got taught more about listening and communication by the deaf community and my sign instructor than I had in 15 years of working professionally and years of acting training mm. yep. where's the disability who's who's uh who's you know at a disadvantage or an advantage I mean it's 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 something that we really I think there's so much work to be done here you know I've spent some time talking about the importance of representation and uh, you know people used to call it diversity and some people still do um, you know that's you know that, that that's that's really you know really really important you know we've been talking about it with regards to race but there's i feel like the conversation around again i mean i can't even hesitate to use the word disability mm -hmm. is is so lagging behind you know it's almost like we we need to find a language for it um you know with uh, you know people have been talking about neurodiversity you know for example rather than people with like learning disabilities or whatever. And um, I'd love us to kind of reach for a language that kind of celebrates the, the richness and diversity of human experience rather than creating a kind of pegging order of, of one kind of experience being more valuable than another. Make no mistake, one kind of experience is a hell of a lot harder than the other because we've set up this kind of you know, societal segregation yeah. between hearing and deaf between blind and seeing and some of that's you know some of that's just the, the way it's been but it, it's not doesn't necessarily have to be the way it is going forwards you know yeah. um, now if this all sounds a bit abstract giving a more specific example why aren't more films in cinemas subtitled yeah <laughs> it's just a pretty simple thing to i mean 
what I'm screening subtitled now with streaming at home, it's great that people can turn on subtitles should they mm. want to. That's, that's actually, a, in, in, in a way, I feel that's the biggest argument for streaming, you know, against uh, cinemas. But as more cinemas introduce closed caption screenings, as we can kind of, um, you know, find apps that kind of sync up live to, um, you know, theater screenings. These are the kind of things that are so easy to overlook with yeah. hearing privilege, um, just just as an example, um, that I think we're starting to shift and we've got a lot further to go. Yeah, it's interesting that, and and I, you know, sometimes wonder. Well, do we need a language as opposed to just acceptance? You know, just to understanding. So much has been talked about mental health over mm. this past year, but we're not actually categorizing people. Um, who necessarily have mental health problems. It's just that the circumstances of COVID with loneliness and so on and various other things have created uh, mental health issues. But we're not necessarily suddenly putting them, you know, into a category. And and I think that with the advancement of technology, um, that it do we need another language? I mean, should it be a case or could it be a case whereby we are a society that simply embraces, accepts, has the patience for, has the uh, means to be adaptable uh, whenever possible to people's circumstances? Mm. And uh, you know, that would be an amazing thing, an amazing world to live in. But um, mm. but I understand that you know that's that's ideal. But yeah, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? Because it's like we do, I guess, on some level, we do need to have some kind of categories, and we do need to have these kind of definitions, um, these neat boxes to describe what is in fact a kind of a rainbow spectrum, mm. right? Like we all have things in our body that challenge us. Someone might have cataracts, someone might be blind, someone may have tinnitus, someone may be completely deaf. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating what you've been saying, Riz, about your experiences with the deaf community and how inclusion and, and access is so important. And just the last thing I think about Sound of Metal, you know, did you feel that... Um, when we think about Ruben, the character, did you feel somehow he was redefined? Um, I mean, we mentioned categories and so on. And at the beginning of the film, we saw a musician, uh, a punk drummer, and we could almost put that person in boxes. But then mm. as the character progressed, did you find that actually Ruben is very much a different person? Yeah, it's really fascinating, you know, um, I feel like I put Ruben into boxes and categorized him when I first approached him. And by the end of the process, he'd become a different person. But, but I'd also found myself in the character, you know, and I think, I hope that that's the journey that I go on with every character, but the, also the audiences go on with every character is that you start off by saying, okay, this, this person is totally different to me. I've, I've got nothing in common with this person. Like, I might be able to relate to them in this way or that way, but this is, this is a separate experience than mine. It's a separate life than my own. And 
by the end of going on this journey with a character, what I hope an audience feels is this is me. I feel this person's pain. This person's fears are my fears. This, the, through the, through the, you know, this empathic act of storytelling, we find ourselves within these characters. And, and certainly that's something that I felt, you know, starting off with, man, this, this guy's nothing like me. How am I going to play a character that's different to me? And then by the end of the journey going, wow, I, I have my own addictions, I guess, you know, well, I, I, um, I keep, keep people at bay through, you know, pursuing the workaholism of my, of my creative passions, you know, all these kind of, um, all these kind of dynamics and, and that, that you kind of think of as being someone else's, you, you kind of, you ultimately realize are, are your own. And, um, you know, it's interesting because that's the only reason why acting is possible, right? It's because we all have different thoughts and beliefs, but we all have the same feelings. Mm-hmm. And when you really just tap into those feelings, you find yourself in that character. And, um, and so I guess all of that is to say is that Ruben, I think, yes, think, starts off thinking of himself as one kind of person. And by the end of the movie, he's not playing in a band. He's not a hearing person. He's not in a relationship. All of these circumstantial things that he defined himself through have changed. So who is he? Mm. He's still Ruben. Yeah, he's someone totally different. And it, it really kind of explodes that the whole concept of identity in a way when you go through those kind of changes and it did for me you know yeah. going through the changes of becoming Ruben you know really kind of stretched my concept of who I am or who I could be and and, and really put me in touch with this profound truth which is that inside each of us is is all of us mm. Mm. and you know once the filming finishes that is done and dusted and then it's over to the next creative team to put it all together I mean do you find it difficult to release yourself from the character or or does it naturally take its course after that intense filming period I think that there's a process of almost grieving you know Mm. of letting go or when um it's not doesn't maybe doesn't happen consciously consciously you're just okay wow I get to you know, sleep in a bit in the mornings and not be up at four and I'm okay. But I think your body takes a minute to let go of mm. those experiences. And to some extent, I think it never does let go of them. Hopefully the the pain or the joy you experience in a scene or on camera are, are, are truthful. They're real. You You know, they're physically identical to that which you might experience in your own life just experienced in a different context with different characters around you and a camera happens to be rolling. And so to some extent, I feel that those experiences that you go through should never leave you. They don't, you know, they're, they're recorded in the body, they're recorded in the mind and the heart and, and hopefully, you know, in being so recorded, they, they kind of expand you, you know, they expand your inner life. They, um, it puts you in touch with the, there's now a different dimension um, to yourself that's that's available to you and those around you that that wasn't there before yeah. the project. So I kind of almost think about this as kind of almost like you're adding lives 
You know, you're adding people to to who you are. Mm. That makes sense. So I kind of hope it does stay with you. I hope it does kind of expand you as an actor. And I hope the same is true of audiences. I hope those characters stay with audiences and they expand their idea of themselves in stretching to relate to this character that they had initially thought was so different to them that expands their idea of themselves, you know. Mm. It's very, very interesting. And I suppose when you think about you as the musician and as the actor, I mean, just uh, I'm just curious, what came first? <laughs> you know, had you always been interested in music or had there always been this inkling to be an actor, even although you studied at Oxford University and studied politics and economics and goodness knows? I mean, it just seemed uh, another world. Yeah, I guess, you know, when I first got to Oxford, I had attended a private school on a kind of bursary, um, on a kind of government-assisted place. Um, So I wasn't totally, uh, you know, kind of coming from a place. I had experienced being around privilege before, but even then going to Oxford did feel like a different world, even to that. Um, And it was unsettling. And, And actually holding on to what I'd been doing before, which was rapping and emceeing and performing on pirate radio stations and at local parties, holding on to that was really a lifeline for me. Music got me through, you know, my university experience. I started putting on club nights. You know, it was something that, that actually put money in my pocket as well. And uh, I guess kind of connected me to where I was coming from and where I thought I was wanted to go. You know, in a way I felt like Oxford was a kind of strange, a surreal interlude, a one that I couldn't say no to. Um, one that I thought was maybe taking me off my path in some ways, but what you realize is sometimes those those tangents, yeah, going the long way around, it, it can actually also add experience that is invaluable to you. And I think it, it did that as well. Um, in terms of what came first, you know, I, my mum saw that I was this hyperactive kid from a young age and she put me in this after-school speech and drama class where you would kind of recite poems, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And like an examiner would come and, you know, give you a grade, speech and drama, grade one, grade two, and all this kind of stuff. She did that for a couple of years between the age of like eight and 10. And then when I was, uh, um, when I went to high school, Again, that was a bit of a kind of shock for me. And I was like, what am I, you know, I remember I was quite a troublesome kid. And at the age of 11, I I put a chair through a window in my first week at school. And a teacher was kind of said to me, if you want to mess around in my classroom, you're going to get suspended or expelled. And if you want to mess around on stage, you'll get a round of applause. So what do you want to do? (laughs) Kind of nudged me towards... Um, acting and there were these after-school plays and stuff and you know it was very 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 cathartic for me it was very therapeutic Um, I think performing just allowed me to kind of air out a lot of intense feelings I had as a young teenager it allowed me to kind of navigate my sense of not belonging in this predominantly white upper-class school at that, which it was at that time, although over my seven years, it, it kind of gradually really shifted and became much more multicultural. It was kind of like a microcosm mm. of the country almost mm. in a strange way. It allowed me to deal with my sense of not belonging by becoming someone else. And um, 
And in, in, a, in a weird way, you know, I, I was I was acting from a very young age because I was flit, kind of flipping between speaking Urdu at home in a working class Pakistani household to being in this more kind of posh white uh, private school to then hanging out with my friends um, outside of that who'd come who were part of a different world and a different scene, you know, the swagger of the 90s British Asian kind of rune boy scene. And, and so I was kind of acting from a young age. So that had always been there. But, you know, finding my, my own voice came from music. That came from emceeing. That came from rapping. That came from hearing, you know, um, listening to hip hop and then listening to UK Garage and Jungle and finding something in the, the energy and the frequency and, um, of that that it just resonated with me so immediately. I mean... Uh, I was such a hyperactive kid. I almost, even the way I'd speak almost felt like I was rapping already. You know what I mean? So it just, it just fit, fit me again. It was, it was, a, it was very much a therapy for me. Um, and I guess being in all of the, the, the different uh, types of communities, you know, you mentioned, well, mainly uh, white kids at school and, and, uh, and, and then perhaps your friends were, uh, Asian and so on and so forth, that that's a, a, a fantastic sort of preparation for being an actor and, and, and putting yourself in different situations in a way. Yeah, it is. It is. It can be very confusing for a while until you realize in retrospect that it's actually an asset. You know, yeah. you realize looking back, okay, wow, that molded me, that shaped me. And, you know, that's, that's often the way, right? The challenges end up being the gifts. That's certainly what Ruben's experience is in Sound of Metal, you know. Mm. Um, the challenge of deafness actually brings him closer to himself and others than he's ever been. And I mean, I, I'm intrigued just, uh, you, you know, when you're describing the immense power. And as you said, you know, you, you seem to find your voice um, as a rapper and, and, and listening to, to, to different types of music. But... In a way, I wonder why in the film Sound of Metal that uh, they made Ruben a drummer as opposed to a type of music that you are already involved with, you know, using, mm. using the voice. Well, you know, um, I think to use your voice, you have to kind of be prepared to take centre stage a bit more. And I think what with Ruben, often with, often with drummers, although it's not true of all drummers, and particularly, you know, seeing your performances... I'm not sure if it's true of you, but sometimes drummers in bands, they are in service to the the singer and the, and the rhythmic, you know, uh, sections. But also they're in the background. They're at the back. They can hide behind the armor and the weaponry of their cannons, <laughs> you know, and I think there's something about Ruben losing that that suddenly makes some, makes him feel more exposed you know, without his weaponry. I also think that there's something about drumming, and I don't mean this in, with, you know, no offense, but I think drummers are crazy. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's an obsession and a physicality and a all body immersion to drumming that is just, well, is literally mind blowing. You have to build different kinds of neural circuitry to play the drums, I think. Uh, in the way that you have this multi-limb coordin like coordination and, you know, it, it is different to 
most instruments, I think, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't some incredible intricacy to playing the harp or the guitar or piano. There is, but you're not using your entire body literally in the same way. Mm. Um, you're not smashing an object incredibly hard hundreds of times a minute in the same way. There's something just physically so uh, intense about it. And I think that just felt really right for the character. So the, psych- the psychological obsession and the physical aggression mm. uh, and, and precision that, that, that comes with drumming, I think, yeah, there's just something primal about it. And there's something whereby the body is so well balanced, even if you're pounding on the drums, the body is really physically, posture-wise, really mm. well balanced. As you say, you're using all of the limbs and every pore of that body is yeah. you know, <laughs> part of the drumming. And in a way, that's the case with sign language too. The body has to be incredibly well balanced and in tune with the the the, the air around the person yeah. in a way. You know? Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I guess for me, sign language was easier because it was so social and enjoyable. I enjoy socializing and meeting new people. The drums, I felt like I had to face myself a lot more. Mm. You know, um, the, I think the drums do make you face yourself. Uh, interestingly, you know, the way you strike the drum is a, is a real reflection of like your emotional frequency at that moment, I think. Mm. Um, at least until you can develop the craft to, to obscure what you're feeling and make it mechanical. But but perhaps then it just feels mechanical. I mean, I'm interested to kind of actually hear from you. Like, do you feel that there is something kind of kind of spiritual almost about the drums? Because I kind of glimpsed some of that. And, and, and if so, why? And what do you think, what do you think that is? That's kind of, I mean, it's ancient, isn't it? But I'd love to get your take on that, that the, the, the mind, body, spirit element of drumming. <laughs> it's such a fascinating question and and i i don't know the answer to be honest uh, uh reese i think that um, i was just about to call you reuben there <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i think a lot of it for me anyway has to do with the natural posture that the body is in i mean if you can imagine a flute and take the flute away the body is in an unnatural position and there's only so long that you could keep that position for, or if you took the violin away but kept the posture, trombone, harp even, you know, so many instruments, oboe, and where, you know, the body is just not in a position that we would naturally be in. But of course, when we're babies, you know, we're using all of our limbs and they're just so free and they'll go in any direction and bend in any direction. And the, the kind of acrobatics that babies get themselves into, you know, legs up in the air and arms doing something completely different, that if we were asked to do that now, we would have to think about it. But I think drumming aligns the body really, really well. And therefore, the sound can be fed really in a natural way so we can digest the sound diet in a way that that's how I feel and I I can last a long time playing drums whereas I can last less time playing a marimba or a vibraphone or a a xylophone or something or tubular bells or whatever but with drumming I can really last an awful long time Um, I mean I remember 
a little while ago, just giving myself a little challenge of just playing a closed snare drum roll. So just on a snare drum and just playing that for 30 minutes nonstop. Now, of course, people have done that much longer, but it it was actually relatively easy to do. Mm-hmm. And it was so incredibly therapeutic. And it's just, I feel, because that body is in its natural position. So I don't think it's wow. any any more than that really that's amazing so then when your body's in that kind of position then you become in a relaxed almost meditative position it's at that point that you can become a vessel for the vibrations around you and in that sense perhaps it 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 has something in common with singing where it's when you're you know in your that proper supported kind of posture you're not pushing you're a vessel and it's interesting you say this because The, the older I get, the more I realize the value of some of the acting training that I really dismissed when I was a kid, which was about holding your posture mm. and training your voice to be open. And I remember when I went to drama school, I thought, man, these people are trying to change me. They're trying to change how I walk and talk and I'm not interested. And actually, when you look back now, you're like, wow, something about maintaining an open channel. It's almost maybe something to do with the chakras or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, where you have that, the open channels that you can kind of be a vessel, that you can transmit, that you can resonate. So, wow, yeah. that's, that's really, really interesting. So it's a kind of meditative posture that, that, that you think. I, it sort of, I suppose, but I don't really pop it in a meditative box, really. It Because mm. at the end of the day, you know, in my case, I'm five foot two, I have relatively short arms, I have fat stubby hands, and so on and so forth. So this is the engine I have to work with. So I can't uh, copy someone who, uh, if they're six foot and have long arms or something, that is their engine. So I couldn't really, I have to allow a technique to allow my body to be to to reach out to that technique rather than trying to force a technique into my body so that the technique has to align to my body um and that's that's really important and um otherwise we're forever practicing eight hours a day trying to do something technical but if it's just not resonating and fitting our body it's just like trying on a suit or something that's two sizes too big or two sizes too small and it can be the most expensive suit in the world but it's not going to work on that body you know so it has to I guess yeah this is so interesting we're saying because it resonates a lot with what I've been you know some of what I've been thinking about acting which is again it has to come from within you know sometimes we can again you're trying you're trying on the suit externally of another character and you know sometimes that can be really pleasurable uh, as an actor to try on that suit and as an audience to mm. watch those kinds of performances. But I don't know. I just, I think there's something so profound that happens when, um, yeah, when it kind of comes from within, when you try and find the version of the character that already exists within you and you mm. let that out. Mm. And I mean, it was fascinating what you were saying much early on about that journey of, uh, knowing that you're not going to do something very well for a period and then for one month you'll do it 
okay, and then at the last moment, a switch will go on and, and aha, everything is lining up. And I mean, that happens even if people regard you as an expert in something, there's always this sort of discomfort and necessary discomfort in order for us to try this, try that, ask questions in, in all different directions. And, and But yes, but there is something amazing about drumming. I think also with, with a lot of drumming is that, you know, you can, you know, for example, with, with your, your drum kit in Sound of Metal, you could put the cymbals in different places. You could mix the drums up. You could play left-handed or right-handed or whatever. So you can always push the boundaries physically of what the body does, not, mm. not just in how hard something is struck, but literally the placement. And that will kind of mix up your, your balance. You know, even if you just said, right, I'll put my hi-hat on the left side or on the right-hand side, it suddenly changes your whole sound and your whole relationship to what you do and your whole coordination and balance and whatever but you can do that with drumming and that's what's so interesting for sure I mean that's something that I was forced to do because I'm left-handed and I sometimes find myself uh, we started off actually drumming right-handed because left-handed people have to learn to do a lot of things right-handed in this right-handed world that we live in and so <laughs> I thought I was drumming right-handed and then they were like, no, actually you should drum left-handed. So then we crossed it over. And then in the end, we drummed left-handed, but kind of open. Yeah. And it's so interesting because it was me trying to find, again, what my natural posture is. Yeah, what's the most resonant physical kind of shape for me to, to, to flow in, you know? And that was, a, that was its own journey of discovery. So I felt like I had to relearn the drums like two or three times within that six months. And it's interesting as well about body tension because uh, something that I didn't realize I was doing the whole of that six months was using my jaw as a metronome. <laughs> I was kind of going, I don't know if, do you have any weird ticks like that? I'm guessing <laughs> anymore. But I was kind of going. <laughs> moving your jaw from side jaw to side. To side, side. <laughs> um, as a metronome, I didn't realize I was doing it. And it was only the day before we were shooting that my drum teacher filmed me from an angle where I could see that I was doing that. I said, what the hell am I doing? He's like, what do you mean? I thought that was a character choice. I've been doing that for six months. I didn't want to get And I said, I just look crazy. I can't do that. So the whole of the day that we were shooting that next day, I was focused purely on not wiggling my jaw. And you know what? It was the best that I'd ever played it. And sometimes it's interesting thinking about something else or allowing your mind to rest on a point of focus, like I'm going to relax my jaw, allows your brain to switch off from trying to think its way through the drum sequence and suddenly the drums are playing you. So it was a crazy, weird thing. I feel like it taught me a lot about life and flow and acting and you know what I mean um, mm. where you put your attention and actually where thinking is not useful where you need to step out of the way mm. fascinating that really and it's funny because you imagine that um, and very often it, it's sometimes um, expressed to me as the percussion player where maybe uh, 
people may comment on, wow, you must have strong wrists or strong hands or you have fast wrists or fast hands and so on. But actually, all of this starts from literally where your feet are planted, you know, where your your bum is, where your neck is, where your head is, where your shoulder is. And and the wrists are, or the hands are the last thing, in a way, that, that is considered, that it's, it's literally getting everything else sorted and and uh and the the wrists and hands will take then care of themselves and then the, the sticks are like the extension of the hands wow. and that's where the power will come and, and it's got to come from the center it's it got to really, come from the center it's got to come from the center and i would probably say beyond that even come from literally the space you're in um that's why i think sign language is so interesting because as you mentioned earlier it's the the, the the flow you know with sign language people don't speak to themselves in sign language not not so much you might come out with an odd sign here and there but you're not actually chatting to yourself in sign language and and so it's a very giving language and drumming is a very giving thing even if it's internal of course but it's 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 filling the 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 space with with um with vibration, literally. Mm, it, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's like like breathing. You breathe in the external environment. Mm. You bring it into yourself. It mixes with your energy. And then you breathe out. And you give back to the environment. And, you know, something, uh, I don't know, again, just thinking about acting, it's like, you know, you breathe in the other person's energy and then you breathe out your intention. You know, you so you need to you kind of check you're not holding your breath and you're not holding mm. that kind of body tension so things can just happen mm. as part of the flow. You know, often we talk about trying to find a flow state as performers. If we get out of our the ways of our body, there is a flow that is constantly happening in the in the in the body breathing. Mm. And kind of what you're describing to me in absorbing your environment and then and then retransmitting into that environment, that is that is breath. You know yes. what I mean? That flow, that exchange of energy, that is also breath. So, um, yeah, I do think it's interesting, you know, I don't know, whenever you kind of, uh, one of the things I love most about acting is you get to get a little glimpse into other disciplines and crafts and, and skills. And the more of them you check out, whether it's like, you know, I had to learn a bit of surfing for, you know, when I did Girls uh, with Lena Dunham or um, learning the drums here or, how to fire a gun on my last film, you know, and fire. And what you realize is, I mean, this may sound stupid to people who are smarter than me who clocked this a long time ago, but it is all about breathing. And it's all about breathing from your center and drumming from your center and drumming as you breathe and breathing as you drum and breathing as you pull the trigger and pulling the trigger from the center. It's, it's so, and it's what's kind of crazy to me is that no one teaches you this. Mm. <laughs> you know, there are no classes in school about kind of finding flow, finding your, you know what I mean? It might mm. sound like really abstract, but I feel like so much of life, you know, comes down to that <laughs> relationships, relationships with yourself, with others, you know, how you conduct yourself, if you can kind of remember to breathe and breathe from your center, you're more than halfway there. I don't mm. know. Um, 
strangely, this conversation has ended up being one about yoga or something. I don't know what's going on, but we're, we're here. We're doing it. Well, yeah. and, and, and on that note, you know, I think I read uh, somewhere or, or someone had mentioned, which I thought was a terrific idea, that every household should have a, a set of drums. And I think that's a, a yes. great thing to advocate for, you know. With earplugs. With earplugs, uh, really distributed too. Yeah. Oh well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I just want to say congratulations again for such a stunning performance in Sound of Metal and all the success uh, it has had. It's it's been Thank an you. extraordinary experience to see that, and I hope you can get back home soon because you Thank are. You. Thank you so much. I really appreciate. Um, your encouragement from when you first saw a cut of the film and we were so anxious to know what you might think of it and um, having your support and your your endorsement of it, it just means the world to all of us who are involved in it. So thank you. And thank you for being such an inspiration. You're very welcome, Riz. Thank you. I would like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. See you in my next one.